Uh, hi, everyone. We're here today with Shape the System and uh, talking to Victoria from Village Capital. Hi, Victoria. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Just love to hear a little bit firstly about um, Village Capital, what you set up there, what that you know system that's operating in and how that's rethinking that system. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, when we talk about what we do, we say Village Capital is reinventing the system to back the entrepreneurs of the future. And right. for us, that's a future where business creates equity and long-term prosperity. So I love the the name of your podcast and I'm glad to be the same boat as you are in wanting to envision a different future. Yeah. And look, you guys have been pioneering this for a while, I think. And to put, put this in some context, the original kind of or initial thinking for ways that this kind of capital allocation works is it tends to be venture capitalists and seed stage funds and growth funds pretty focused on profit motives and pretty focused on a very small and narrow set of people and problems in certain markets and mm -hmm. to unpack how Village Capital is kind of rethinking that. Yeah. So we, we have been doing this for a while. We're actually coming up this fall on our 10-year anniversary, which is a little bit shocking for us to believe, but we have been at it now in a number of different geographies and now for quite a number of years. And really, we, we set out at the beginning to address a few really fundamental problems in how early stage innovation is funded. As you rightly point out, I think a disproportionate amount of capital globally goes to things that we see as, you know, kind of nice to have rather than need to have solutions in terms of the fundamental issue areas um, we're looking right. at. You know, I, I spend most of my time here in San Francisco and it's really easy to find convenience focused apps that will have, you know, mega seed rounds get off the ground pretty easily. But a lot of the really fundamental social and environmental issues that we care about might have a lot more difficult time finding funding to back innovation. Sure. Not only that, but we see, you know, very sort of homogenous type of founder typically have an easier time raising capital. And that tends to be somebody who's probably male, probably young, and probably sitting in a geography that's already very well capitalized. Uh, right. And we just don't think that that's the only profile of person that has a great idea or the potential to build a great business. Uh, and we're trying to do things differently so that we make some progress towards the first goal of really solving the problems that matter, and then definitely make some progress towards the second goal, which you know, is focused on opportunity being available to meet everybody's potential. Sure. And in fact, you, you use a very specific word there, which I want to pick up on, where you talked about building a great business. And I think part of the starting point here is to is to challenge our notion of what a great business is. Mm -hmm. um, how, do you, how do you think about what, what makes a great business from your lens? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the most fundamental piece clearly is is we want something that finds product market fit with customers. So it's solving a real pain point that people will pay money for. Yeah. You know, I think oftentimes one of the pieces that gets confused a little bit with people in our world who want to have impact at the same time as they generate financial returns is that inherently there must be some sort of concessionary motive or you know allowance that we're not in, in it to actually make money. And, and that's not actually true. I think it's pretty essential that if we want to have impact and really solve some problems that we think could have market-oriented solutions, 
none of that will work if it's not sustainable. Sure. It's really essential that people figure out a business model that can get a business off the ground and then hopefully take it to a very reasonable scale so that we have not just, you know, local or sort of small impact, but are reaching thousands and millions of people and addressing some of these challenges that clearly aren't, aren't getting addressed right now based on how sort of status quo business operates or the limitations of government and philanthropy. Yeah, totally. And look, maybe just to help kind of put some, you know, really to clarify that for people listening, give, give me maybe one or two examples of the types of businesses that have been, you know, super successful under that lens and in that model. Absolutely. So, you know, we're, we're across a broad range of sectors, everything from renewable energy and sustainable food and agriculture to the future of work and education to inclusive finance to healthcare. Just taking as one example, we have, we're invested in a business called Remedy that's based in Atlanta, a former medical doctor who was really plagued by the notion of how much inefficiency she saw in how patients and providers of healthcare and payers of healthcare, so typically insurance companies and others, were interacting in a system around chronic disease management and left right. the medical profession to form a company that would provide a, a tech-enabled solution to that problem. In, sure. you know, in the U.S., we see chronic disease like diabetes and obesity and liver disease and others really be this sort of perfect storm of conditions that affects people across the population, but particularly dramatically lower wealth and lower income populations that are typically right. people of color. And there has to be a better way for them to get the right personalized type of care they need to get the right communications from their healthcare providers, come up with individualized plans that will you know, better enable them to adhere to those prescriptions or medications. And I think for us, the, the challenge is, you know, as we set out to try to impact some of these issue areas, they're not one simple problem. You know, they're, they're sure. inter, intertwined and interdependent with a lot of other aspects of somebody's life. If they have a really, right. you know, inflexible job or have to have multiple jobs, it's not easy for them to go to doctor's appointments all the time. Or if they, you know, can't afford to, maintain or own their own car and have to um, use a lot of public transportation to get to and from healthcare providers and to their place of work or where they live, you know, what does that mean for their propensity to skip appointments if um, they're running late or if, you know, their child is sick and they need to stay home rather than go do something for themselves. So Remedy is a solution that addresses a subset of those things, but looks at the, the healthcare pieces fundamentally more holistically to say the way that we've treated some of these conditions in the past is really one size fits all. And the technology that Dr. Lucy Ide um, and her team have developed allows providers to better forecast through an algorithm that they developed. Okay, if these are your conditions and your sort of comorbidities, if we change XYZ in the medications that you're taking or certain aspects of your lifestyle, how will that affect your prognosis going forward? And doing that in a way that is really clearly communicated to patients. And I think she's just, she's an example of the type of founder who, you know, has lived experience with the problem that she's trying to address from a really in-depth place of expertise 
but she has such a fundamental human approach to it um, and really cares about the fact that, you know, in Atlanta where they're based, if you go across, you know, county lines, you have completely different health outcomes. <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't be laughing, but I, I actually spent a bit of time in Atlanta. We, um, oh, yeah. we had an office out there for a while and I wasn't very flush at the time that I was having to go back and forth to visit that office. Mm-hmm. I had to stay in areas where literally walking on one side of a train line versus the other side of a train line was like 10 times difference in property value and, you know, and income and and all the rest of it was, uh, it was was amazing. So I I actually know that firsthand. I just want to come back to a couple of things here um, because you talked there about lived experience and I think uh, it was going to be one of my questions. I think you often are finding founders who have been firsthand dealing with a certain challenge in a certain market and, you know, this is co- quite common in founders more broadly, even though it's not in the kind of the village capital mindset. But I think that that's obviously a fundamental part of it. I guess I, I'm, I'm assuming that's some form of trait, but I, I just wanted to ask as well, is part of what's making this possible now is that the, the technology that can be built or can be, you know, co- cobbled together if it's not built, it might be multitudes of technologies combined. We're now at a point where you can solve these problems using technology at a, at a scale which previously, maybe 10 years ago, would have either been impossible or so costly as to mean unfeasible. Is that part of what we're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true and to, to varying extents across the industries we work in. You know, I think by and large, any sort of software-enabled business or tech broadly, but that means a lot of things to a lot of people, just the costs for experimenting and taking a risk on a startup are so much lower than a few decades ago when you needed to really be making huge investments in your own servers and and infrastructure to even be testing things. So I I think that definitely is one of the enabling factors. And, And then I think just the narratives around startup success kind of as distorted as they are in some in some parts of our view that you know a lot of things get celebrated that we think may not be the the purest examples of what we'd like to see have have uh, sort of shown a light on the potential of early stage businesses ability to address some of these problems and yet I'll say as a huge caveat we're seeing really in terms of just the data out there, and I'll speak for the U.S. in particular here, although we operate globally, a real decline in entrepreneurship. One of the things that we've been thinking about is, you know, how do we play a bigger role in making this seem like a viable opportunity for anybody that has a great idea and is willing to really work hard to achieve it? And I think what is really stark about that is that, you know, it's very costly, as you well know, Vincent, having been in these shoes yourself in, in a few different instances now at this point, like the opportunity cost for taking the, the leap to be a founder is is really quite high. It not only assumes that you can kind of afford to be in the lifestyle that might be pretty bare bones for a while as you're sort of vetting an idea and trying to get it off the ground, but it also assumes that you can afford to fail and that, you know, you're willing to take a risk on something that might not work out and still have a plan B that allows you to, you know, put food on the table and a roof over your head. And if you have a family to help provide Mm -hmm. for that family, 
and the amount of wealth inequality and access to networks and power that we've seen that is so disparate among populations certainly in the US but but globally mm-hmm. has meant that that choice really isn't available to everybody yeah and so that's right okay. go ahead I was gonna say it's interesting that we um we had a chat to a, a gentleman a couple of weeks ago who has a startup studio in Africa and he said for those people that are coming in through his studio there isn't there isn't a plan B and you know we yeah. often I often think oh what's the worst that can happen you go back to to work and you have a job and in some cases well no I, the, even having the job is part of it or having two or three jobs and then thinking this right. isn't fulfilling me and I'm not working where I'd like to be applying my skills and you know wake up every day and be not just engaged but also feel like I'm actually going to leave the planet better than when I found it kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, some investors certainly say, look, you know, I want, I want to find the the profile of founder that doesn't have a plan B because that right. is going to be the person who's willing to run through walls and, you know, doesn't feel like they have a parachute. And I, I understand that point of view certainly. Mm. And I get where it comes from, but it also sort of assumes that what's, on the other side of that failure isn't a really stark option. Yeah. And they, even if they fail, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a circular path where a certain type of demographic can wear failure as a, as a real badge of honor. Right. And for other people, it doesn't carry that connotation at all. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's a balance. I think, I think there's, there's certainly something about having, you know, fire in the belly as I, as I call it with regards to yeah. early stage and, not sure how the thing's going to work, especially, and I think this will be really relevant to to you and the cohort of, of, of founders who come through the program, especially when there's not a lot of clarity on the business model. I think when it's relatively mm-hmm. straightforward how the business is going to work, then it's one, you know, you make a product and people are going to buy that product and it's better than the other product. That's fine. But when you have these businesses that are either rethinking a business model or bringing an entirely new service to a class of people who haven't had it or, you know, potentially what the kind of thing we're doing at the moment where, you know, doing something in a new way with a new brand um, that's infrequent and high value and highly emotional. There's a whole lot of variables that go into making that work. Um, there's this huge amount of uncertainty in those businesses. And when you, you you know combine that with someone who says, well, I, I'm not sure how I'm going to, you know, pay for term for my child next quarter, um, there's less of those mm-hmm. people willing to make those risks and take those jumps, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So um, just in terms of that, you said you've always been going for 10 years, which is amazing. Happy birthday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, <laughs> not just with the founders specifically and their successes, but in terms of, I mean, you're, you're, it's kind of a meta because you're creating and, and rethinking a system, but that is also enabling you know, founders and entrepreneurs and, and people to do the same. But within, with respect mm-hmm. to Village Capital yourself, Tell me about the, you know, the kind of the big wins and the big kind of, you know, losses, for want of a better word, that you've had in the last yeah. nine years in, in actually rethinking the system that you're rethinking. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we, we've been reflecting a little bit as we approach this anniversary and are just so grateful for the amazing sort of collective that we've gotten to work with from founders to partners to investors to our teammates. And I think the big wins for us are really putting out there into the world a, a different approach to doing this and and challenging some of the conversations that we see around early stage 
venture activity. And I think the things that we used to talk about that seemed pretty far out there to people are now getting much more mainstream attention. And so that is a huge win to us. You know, we've seen peer review and peer selection as a, as an approach to investment activity while still sort of an outlier as something we pioneered be, be more broadly adopted across both a network that we've cultivated that we call Vilcap communities, but also with some organizations that are farther afield from us that, you know, have, have seen our work and brought it into their own. I think certainly we've seen you know, the rise of scout programs in mainstream venture funds adopt in a much larger scale than when we started 10 years ago, the approach that it just makes a ton of sense for founders who are actively out there trying to solve a problem within a given sector to also be catalyzing innovation and sort of taking some some bets on who they think is going to succeed over time. Um, And that concept which seemed when we were out there in the early days sort of crazy to people to say, you know, how can you expect entrepreneurs to pick your investments? Like they're, they're fundamentally a different, you know, breed of right. operating style than an investor right. has really gotten a lot more normal. Can you actually just explain this? I think this is actually a foreign concept for a lot of people and not how most people yeah. imagine how investments happen. Can you just break that down for people how this actually works? Yeah, you you mentioned earlier on we're we're a little bit meta in a way since we're we see ourselves as a force for innovation and we're backing innovators. Yeah. But one of the things that we talk about quite a bit is that it's just doesn't make any sense to us that the process of venture capital really hasn't innovated itself yeah. at all for the past several decades in spite of the fact that its entire success is predicated on finding the next great innovation. And it, for some reason, it's one of those those sort of places of exceptionalism where you think they, that you don't need to be held to the same standard that you're holding your your counterpart to. So we, we set up to create a system that would challenge some of that and especially to focus on some of the inherent power dynamics that are part of early stage investing. And, and I think those are marked by a few things. One, you know, the, the people doing all of the hard work that are closest to their customers that are trying to solve these big problems that are taking a ton of personal risk are often sort of at the whim of the capital holders. And they don't have a ton of, they don't have the same comfort or history with negotiating terms. Sure. They're not, you know, seeing the same patterns out there in the market. They're, they're meant to be full-time experts on running their business. And when it comes to actually getting the capital to do it, they're at a, a pretty big disadvantage. Right. Um, so we wanted to change some of that power dynamic and put entrepreneurs in the seat where they could uh, actually themselves have a voice in what innovation got funded. Um, and in the same process of evaluating a peer group of founders within the same given sector, learn a lot more about how investors were scrutinizing their own businesses right. so that they would have an advantage right. when they went into their next investor meeting. So for the last 10 years, clearly we've, you know, it's been a long work in progress, but we've established a program where we take a batch of entrepreneurs at a time. We were thrilled to have you participate in one of those. Mm-hmm. And within a given sector, we work with those companies over the course of usually about three months take them through our curriculum and methodology and bring in a bunch of mentors and investors and advisors, but fundamentally operate from the belief that we think they as founders have a ton already to bring to the table 
and are more than capable and in fact uniquely qualified to evaluate each other against our investment criteria. And then our fund takes their evaluations and that's how we write our checks. Right. Which is fascinating. And I think in, when you're actually in this process, there's, I mean, in our case, it was 15 companies in a room, typically one to two founders per company. And on a, it's a basically a four days over every month for three months. And then you, at the end of that four day period on a, on a category scale of like, I don't know, 20 different categories from memory, you provide feedback, um, which is both visible and somewhat anonymous in terms of it's grouped up and eventually you can trace it back from memory. And, um, it's, it's, it's actually, uh, liberating, confronting, challenging, eye opening. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a fascinating, fascinating and very different process. And at the end of that, three months, then the checks that get written out of that, specifically out of that program, are written based on the first and second, if from memory it was, or maybe the first. Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're still pushing it. Um, yeah, very good memory. Yeah, we have. <laughs> yeah, we have. Um, Sorry, yeah, and we continue, you know, we've, we have continued to iterate on the, the process and criteria and, you know, are trying to continue to hold ourselves to the same standard around innovation and always taking in a lot of feedback from the founders who participate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, just the, 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 the that's been, a, I think, a, a shining light. And I've seen, uh, even from the time that, that we were involved, uh, seen, you know, the program pop up in Mexico City and, and, and a whole bunch of other places. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think it's absolutely a model that can take, go beyond the US and, and clearly it has. Um, I, I, so there's been some wins there as well. I am still keen to understand you know, what have been, it doesn't have to be losses, but what have been the, the big, big oh, yeah. roadblocks in, in this 10 year period as well? Yeah, um, no, certainly. I, I <laughs> missed that part, <laughs> missed following up on that part of your question. You know, I think there are certainly the day to day losses of we're, we're working with very early stage companies. Right. And so we sort of feel, you know, we, sometimes draw out this kind of entrepreneurial curve that I'm sure you would be uh, a great artist of that shows, you know, the absolute exhilaration of how highs, how high the highs can be where you feel like you're really meeting a need and getting a lot of traction. And then within, you know, the span of a few hours can be in the depths of, is this ever going to work or, you know, and I think investors don't, have quite that same amplitude, but we feel those same highs and lows through the companies that that we are lucky to be partnered with. So I think certainly, you know, with the amount of risk that we're taking, things don't always work, and right. and that's part of the game. But it can feel really um, depleting when you believe in a team and believe they have the solution, and for whatever reason, market dynamics, technical risk, you know financing risk yeah. when they don't get there. Uh, I, we, we live those losses too and, and take them pretty hard. Yeah. I think the other piece is just still feeling like even though, you know, we have worked with now more than 1200 entrepreneurs and have invested in more than a hundred companies, like it, it still feels like we want to see the whole sector shift much faster right. than it has. Right. Um, and I think, that some of the, you know, impatience of, of optimists as the Gates Foundation likes to talk about that we want to see the world changing faster. And these aren't problems that we can afford to be moving slowly against. Yeah. And look, I think, I think it leads to a sort of a, uh, a segue around, you know, there's been plenty written about this. I think Ross 
your co-founder has also written about this in some respect, this challenge of systemic change and it's part of the reason that we, we do this podcast. I think there is absolutely a, it's, it's challenging to actually change the way that things work and whether that's a system of, of capital or in a lot of cases when, uh, and I would, I would imagine this would be very specific to the, to the founders in, in the village capital community. They're having to change things that are not just commercial change and even customer behavior, but a lot of the time policy change and influencing the way decisions are made within the construct that they operate in. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. assuming that's, that's you know, uh, an enduring challenge both for you and for the founders. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we try to think about what types of resources they need really holistically. Mm-hmm. So we're not just focused on, okay, well, you know, one of the main pain points of, of starting a new enterprise is clearly getting it funded. So we're just going to surround you with a bunch of investors. Right. But instead, really bringing in to the program a slate of customers that they can do hypothesis testing with and you know demo their products for and iterate on them and regulatory and policy experts that can sort of give them some of the guide rails and they can figure out how to operate within the context of what the system looks like today and hopefully influence where it's going on the margin, depending on the industries that they're in. But it does take a lot of people who are really bought into the same type of change happening. And I think, you know, particularly when you see some of the the sort of community rhetoric and political environment we're in be as divided as it is today, it it can feel difficult to get everybody moving in the same direction. Yeah, and look, I think a part of it may not be necessarily trying to change, you know, the the, uh, system. Like at the moment I'm inputting to policy around domain names in Australia and clearly that's not, you know, life-changing, world-changing stuff. But even helping Mm -hmm. a founder or an entrepreneur to understand that you should be interacting with policy. Policy is is one of the foundations yep. and the pillars that enables you to operate in the way that you do. And I think Elizabeth Warren talks about this quite well in terms of the, you know, the, you, you might grow a business and employ people and we thank you for that, but, you know, you still drive on the road. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm paraphrasing yeah. it terribly, I realise. Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, being cognizant and present in, with regards to these, these other factors and these constructs that exist around you is something that, you know, people shouldn't take lightly and I think a, a big part of, of playing in in systems change, whether that's in energy or health or food or financial independence or security or equality, all involve some interaction with public policy. Yeah, um, yeah. changing gears just a little bit. I'm I, you've been running at this for ten years or, or close to, but how how did you arrive at doing this? <laughs> if I can remember that far back, uh, so I I mean going way way back, I think. It was definitely part of our kind of family makeup that my parents, I think, did to their credit a great job of showing us that the world was a lot bigger than our sort of tiny bubbles and that it's fine to try to, you know, build things for yourself and pursue your interests, but that that is pretty short term fulfilling and that the, the stuff that really makes a life long-term fulfilling is being part of something that's much bigger than yourself and and working to change things for the better and i think that was you know really a value through a lot of kind of service orientation and um being part of a, a community that they spent a lot of time 
thinking about. But as I went to school and sort of off on my own, started getting much more interested in kind of a global perspective and studied international relations and spent time in different countries. And it was just increasingly so bothersome to me to realize how much of the privilege that I had enjoyed growing up in a place that was safe and economically stable and had plentiful opportunity was a, a total lottery of birth. Um, and and yeah. so much of the trajectory of your life gets determined in such a haphazard way and advantage and disadvantage compounds from such an early age. And I think, you know, that's, that's certainly true in the US, but is very true globally. Right. So that was part of why, you know, I, I studied the things that I did in school and I pursued a fellowship that really was focused on international development coming out of school and then tried to get some investment skills within traditional private equity to <laughs> figure out how capital markets worked and how things yeah. could be funded better. Yeah, it, it was a pretty big 180 from moving from Uganda to New York uh, at the beginning of the right. financial crisis to do that. And then... Yeah knew that, you know, getting those skills, I would want to go back to finding a way to really move capital into markets where I thought we could solve some of these much larger, more fundamental issues sure. about social inequality and environmental sustainability. And went to business school after I did the job in private equity, had another brief detour to East Africa to work on an ag fund, um, spent a few months at the Gates Foundation on one of their investment teams. And then coming out of grad school, um, Ross and I met through a variety of mutual friends um, and were talking about a lot of the same things. He had been working on the, the ideas of village capital and had just started spinning them out of a fam family office. Right. Then that starts the, the the last 10 years and we've evolved quite a bit over that stretch. Totally got it. And was in that time frame, was there some kind of, I mean, it sounds like you've been on this arc for a while. It wasn't, you know, this kind of cliched moment where someone says, I was sitting at a desk and I realized I wanted to do more with my life. Like there's clearly been an yeah. arc of a story for a while, but in inside of that were there like moments or stretches where you had, kind of very specific inspirational reassurance or reaffirmation of, of that direction? Yeah. I, so I think, you know, the themes certainly feel like they've been there for a long time. And I, I try to be cognizant of the fact that it's it's very easy to tell these stories in reverse <laughs> in a way that makes them sound like they, you know, were so perfectly planned out. I definitely had a lot of moments of like career anxiety and what am I going to do next right. um, along the way. But I, I think... Early on, I I definitely was had this conviction around international development, working on hard problems, right. doing something that felt bigger than than just trying to make money. But probably thought that I would do it more in a nonprofit or even international law type of setting. I took the LSAT, was planning to go to law school, and then actually spent some time during the fellowship I had at the International Criminal Court, which would have been you know my my sort of dream job and realized that that was not at all going to be after I spent some time there, the thing I actually wanted to do long-term right. in another sort of chapter of that same year worked in microfinance in conflict zones of Western Kenya and Northern Uganda and 
kept feeling like I was running up against the same stumbling blocks that were sort of within the NGO, nonprofit, and aid context of international development. Yeah. And that was definitely one of the moments that I took a step back and sort of had the, the thought of there is a way to solve some of these problems about getting people who have been through absolutely horrible disruption to their lives back on their feet economically and that don't have to put them on this kind of revolving door cycle of aid. Right. And I think that that has something to do with building businesses. And if I could figure out how to invest in those kinds of businesses, that's something I think I could be passionate about doing for a really long time. <laughs> and and that is what prompted that that big 180 from, you know, the a very different day-to-day -day setting to New York to try to get a job in finance so that I could learn how to be an investor because I never had before. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And, and it's um I think it what's interesting as well is that you know typically the the chart of a of an entrepreneur or a founder and I, I'm talking about you in this context not the people within the um village capital uh is one where there's you know there's kind of an, an itch that they want to scratch and then they just go and start working on the problem. Um and your take there was to identify that to, to really have a, an impact here or to to work in this problem space there was a set of skills you needed to get first and best to go out and understand that um you know to be kind of brash in some respects on someone else's dime so that you could go and get well versed in how this whole universe worked and then work out how and and where you needed to play in that space yeah again i think you know easy to attribute <laughs> a lot of planning and and foresight to it i was lucky that it it worked out the way that it did. And it didn't happen immediately. Cool. I, I definitely remember moving to New York with this plan and then feeling pretty defeated for a few months while I, you know, couldn't get anybody to take a chance on me having, you know, just moved from Uganda, never having worked at an investment bank during a summer of college and have a lot of credit to give to the firm that took a chance on me. And they really did it because they saw, you know, if you can if you can live in a bunch of different cultures and sort of figure out how to make yourself useful and you look like you can learn things pretty quickly, like investing is not rocket right, science. Right. Um, and I think a lot of people feel uh, sort of intimidated by it before they sort of get behind the other side of the, the curtain and realize that, you know, if you can, can think about, sort of quantitative problems at a pretty basic level, you don't need to be able to do calculus yeah. to, to make good enough. <laughs> it's a different type of problem solving. Um, yeah. Totally. Just just sort of thinking more broadly around that. So, I mean, you, you operate in a space where you, you know, encounter on a pretty regular basis within Village Capital, specifically people working on super inspiring and challenging problems and solving really interesting things. Um, from From your perspective, like what are the, kind of the five or six big problem areas that you see or what I like to call first-order problems that you think that we collectively should be working on. And even outside of Village Capital, I'd love to hear about one or two people who you think are doing some really interesting or amazing stuff in those problem areas. First and foremost, it feels like the, the climate change issue is just something that is becoming clearer and clearer by the day nearly what an existential 
sort of threat we're up against. Um, it's fall here in California, which now means that it's the season that we're getting used to there being just terrible annual wildfires. Um, and it's like, it's to the point where you can smell smoke in San Francisco again, and they're having to do air quality alerts. I know that, you know, you have had a rash of those in Australia as well. And it, it, I don't know how much clearer the warning signs need to be for us to take really seriously what a what a what an existential threat this is to our planet and it is going to hurt the most um vulnerable populations the hardest so that's certainly one place that we focus on in the work that we do around renewable energy and sustainable food and agriculture um but i'm i'm really inspired by other organizations that i think are really active on a very large scale in this space things like project drawdown um that are you know focused on gigaton reductions in co2 emissions whereas the the founders that we're working with and the stage that we interact with tend to be much more focused on you know capital efficient solutions Mm -hmm. that we think will have really large impacts but that will take a lot of those types of solutions you know, and to, in some, res- to, to make in some respects, climate change is is now is I, I might be drawing a long bow here, but it's somewhat of an umbrella term as well to say it's a whole bunch of things we're doing that are causing problems with the climate. But it's also uh, a a spectrum of things where we're not very good at producing the things we need without destroying the thing that produces it. And that could be the water, it could be mm-hmm. the soil, it could be the food where we need it or the, the ground that it lives in or the water that it gets, you know, created in. Um, I, I think there's often yeah. a, a, a temptation for people to sort of look at a particular thing and say, well, that's what that thing is and I don't, I'm not sure about that thing, ignoring that really there's, a you know, a lot of intertwined issues that all account to our being here and our necessity to consume things that enable us to be here and the way in which we achieve that. Yep, yep. Um, no, I think it's back to the, you know, the, the idea of how intertwined all of these issues yeah. are, um, not just on the environmental front, but also on a lot of the social and environmental, I mean, the social and um, sort of economic issues that we talk about. I think on that front and in the US, you know, we're facing a big demographic shift where people are living much longer and have not, have not thought about sort of how to afford that change were, you know, I think 75% of the U.S. can't meet an unexpected $400 or $500 expense. Uh, And we're having people who, you know, are going to live longer, are going to need much more healthcare and are not financially equipped to do it. And, And right now we don't have the the full safety net that we need to provide for them. So we're going to need a lot of pretty innovative solutions to figure out how we get there without a lot of pain across a huge part of the population. Sure. That again goes back to there are definitely some policy issues that that need to change to better support that. But we think there are also some some market um, opportunities that innovative companies that have people's interest at heart can come up with with better ways to provide yeah. some safety net. I, I think, um, and just sort of dwelling on this for a moment, because I think that this financial inequality is, is, is a big thing globally and, and the US is actually somewhat surprisingly but somewhat unsurprisingly 
a global leader in financial inequality. You know, I'm saying that tongue in cheek yep. to a degree, um, but I do remember. Yeah. I think the core VC guys um, talking about how expensive it is to be poor in the US, and I think yep. where you look at a market where there is um, a mispricing of services, and the, the one that I, I tend to come back to is uh, retail financial banking. And I remember hearing arguments from mm-hmm. kind of far up in you know certain large banks that it's not worth trying to provide financial services to you know the hundred million people or however many it is who are un- unbanked or underbanked. Uh, and I'm like, I don't understand how a business that could have a hundred million customers who um, you know might give you all of their money, even if that's somewhere between a couple of thousand dollars and, and sub ten thousand dollars, wouldn't be a profitable business. Mm-hmm. Like most businesses would kill to have that type of. Um, customer exposure if they worked out the unit economics of their business properly. Yep. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we at a bunch of different levels and we probably could spend a whole nother time just talking about this, but have thought about the number of things that don't get solved because people sometimes incorrectly assume that small scale will right. never work. Uh, and, and that's one of the challenges that our fund sought out to disprove was you know, a lot of, especially outside of the U.S., a lot of innovation doesn't get funded because people are like, oh, it's just too expensive to write a 25, 50, 100K check. Um, and to do that, you need a small fund. And small funds can't pay for themselves because, you know, 2% management fees off of a small fund size doesn't right. get you anywhere. Right. And so there's these, you know, ripple on structural issues that people say like, oh, well, that's just how the system yeah. works. Uh, and one of the things that we've really tried to make a dent in is re-envisioning how that system should work, coming up with ways that it could be more efficient so that for opportunities like those, you know, hundreds of millions of people who are under underbanked or innovators that have ideas and yet can't even get their first check because there's nobody who thinks that it's, you know, efficient to write those right. small checks, do find somebody to believe Absolutely. in them. Um, just... As you said, we probably could 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 talk for a while because there's a whole bunch to unpack here. Um, I'll probably close out with one quick question, and I think this is something I like to to ask. In that, in solving for systemic problems and being sort of close to just you know first order problems generally, I tend to ask people how they uh, reconcile that, how they find you know balance for themselves. Like, what is it that you're doing on a day to day basis to to keep yourself grounded and to not get too caught up in it all? <laughs> mm, yeah. Thank you for asking that. I try to spend more time outside. Uh, so to the extent that I can, you know, take a walk while I'm doing a meeting or be uh, outside on the phone, I have found that it definitely helps me feel a lot calmer. I think there's tons of data out there about nature deficit and what horrible effects it's having on general anxiety and other mental health issue levels. So I try to get outside. I would like to do that more. There are, I'm lucky that I live in a part of California that has a lot of natural beauty. So and that, that helps. Certainly reading is one of the few hobbies that I've been able to maintain as my life continues to get a lot busier with two young kids and work and family and, and all that comes with it. Uh, but I, I definitely do get a lot of pleasure and peace from kind Hugging of... A tree. Yeah, hugging a tree, reading a book, taking my mind off of the the day to day work that can sometimes seem overwhelming, and and frankly, the number of other problems that our work doesn't even touch that I, I'm you know 
impressed and grateful that a lot of other people pursue. But in addition to those things and, and trying to exercise now and then when I can, certainly spending time with, with my family and with my kids who continue to see wonder in a lot of parts of the world that, that I have as an adult taken for granted. Uh, they're a great reminder every day that as much as we can feel overwhelmed by everything that we need to work on, there's a lot of of joy and uh, things that are, are pretty awesome all around right. us. Perfect. We'll um, leave it there for today. Um, Victoria, it was um, absolute pleasure and really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much, Vincent.